You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. All right, so we have just a couple of weeks left in our study of the Old Testament book called Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, and we're in chapter 11 today. And you know, we oftentimes spend so much of our energy uh, related to our, our life, our family, our finances, our faith, our relationships. But today, we want to get a bigger picture. We're going to look down on culture in general and on our lives in particular from God's perspective. So let me set up Nehemiah 11. There are two views. When you look at culture and the world and how it's all trending, there is the Christian view, and and that is that we are sinners. By nature, we are born as sinners, and by choice, we can't choose to be perfect. And that we live in a world that is fallen and cursed and broken, and if you just let everybody do and think and feel whatever they want, it's going to get worse. Now, the non-Christian view is that we are basically good. And since we're good, if we let people do what they want and think what they want and feel whatever feels right to them, the world will get better. And so the result is, if that's your view, you need less law, less leadership, less religion, less Bible teaching, less parental involvement, less authorities. People are good. Just let them be and things will get better. Now, we don't believe that. If you just let everyone do what they want, feel what they feel, think what they think, ultimately they're going to hurt themselves and destroy everything. So what happens is God calls his people to live in a countercultural way. To say, you know what? We're going to defy gravity, as it were. The way we do life and sex and marriage and gender and family and religion and finances is different because God's people are to live lives according to the Bible and to set an example for others. So what I want to do, I want to ask, okay, where we are, is it a place where God's people have been before? And was there an occasion where God called his people to action that led to some transformation. So as we look at Nehemiah, we're going to realize that we find ourselves in pretty much the same predicament. And so let me summarize Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, uh, a book written a few thousand years ago, but tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. There was a nation that was blessed by God uniquely. So even though many, if not most of the people didn't live as believers. Now, there's a difference between blessed by God and obeying God. Many of them did not practice obedience to God, and for a very long time, they were still blessed uniquely by God. Sound familiar? This was an ancient nation of Israel, not too dissimilar from our own nation and our day. 
The people got so accustomed generation after generation of being blessed that they just sort of took it for granted and got entitled. Okay, well, we'll always be safe. The borders will always be secure. We'll always have prosperity. You know, the economy will always bounce back. We're going to be okay. So they got entitled, and as a result, they got very indifferent, very lukewarm, very selfish, very self-indulgent. And they started a time of deterioration and decline of their culture. And God knew that this wasn't going to end well for them. And so he sends a succession of prophets. And a prophet would stand up, proclaim the word of God, tell the people, this needs to stop. Obedience to God needs to start. In your Bible, this would be books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Three of the major prophets that God sent to his people to say the blessing isn't going to continue forever. We need to turn it around and start believing and behaving. Eventually, through lots of prophets, lots of patience, God finally ran out of patience for the nation and his people. And he allowed a foreign nation called Babylon, an empire really, to invade them. And all of this was recorded in the book of Daniel. Daniel and Nehemiah are connected. So Daniel was living in the day in which God withdrew his hand of blessing. Not all at once. It was very, he was very patient. But eventually he removed his hand of provision and protection And he let this godless, demonic, horrible empire called Babylon invade Israel. They tore down the walls. They closed the temple, the equivalent of church. They enslaved God's people. And all of this was recorded in the book of Daniel. And what we're seeing in Nehemiah, that there's a connection between the two. 141 years after Daniel, Nehemiah is in Babylon. And they eventually get overtaken by the Persians. You're like, okay, well, what's a Jewish guy doing in Persia? Well, for 141 years, they've been there. Because they got invaded and taken as captives. So Nehemiah is way away from his home country as a Jewish man. And God breaks his heart for the predicament that they find themselves in. And Nehemiah wants to go back and rebuild the walls and rehang the gates and protect the city and the people and reoccupy the city with God's people and reopen the church so that they can worship God. And he's trying to undo the damage that was done in the days of Daniel. By the way, the Persian or Babylonian empire also represents a demonic spirit. And this mention of Babylon continues all the way through to the end of the Bible, into the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation that tells us what happens at the end, there is a battle between the spirit of God and the spirit of Babylon. Revelation tells us that this will continue until Jesus comes back and wins the victory once and for all. In Revelation 17, it calls Babylon the mother of prostitutes. And Babylon's great fall is mentioned four times in Revelation. And by the time the Lord Jesus will come back, the empires of Babylon and Persia, they are long gone. 
They are the underpinnings, though, of the book of Nehemiah. They are long gone, but the demons remain. Today, the spirit of Babylon is alive and well. The spirit of Babylon is at work in our culture in which we live, and it represents a counterfeit to the spirit of God. We're going to get into all of this in Nehemiah, but this is the Persian Empire, and the capital is Susa. This was ancient Babylon. And the goal of the spirit of Babylon is to overtake every sphere of society and to establish a counterfeit kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of God. That's what Nehemiah is up against from beginning to end in this book that bears his name. In the New Testament, the language would be, this is the world. This is the church versus the world. Now, the spirit of Babylon in the days of Daniel, and then 141 years later in the days of Nehemiah to our own day, seeks to do three things. Number one, close the church. In the days of Daniel, they forbid the worship of God. They invaded Jerusalem. They shut down the temple, and the worship of God was canceled. In the days of Nehemiah, He's trying to get from Susa, the capital city, back to the headquarters of the city of God, which is Jerusalem, to do what? To reopen the temple so that God can be worshipped because the church has been closed for 141 years. Well, number two, if the spirit of Babylon can't keep the church closed, it's going to make the church compromised. If the church is open... Well, then the word of God needs to stay closed so that even as people come, they're not going to hear the truth. So all of a sudden, the Bible's not being taught. The spirit of Babylon is doing the instructing. We already saw this. The believing men were marrying unbelieving women, and they were raising their kids apart from the Lord. Nehemiah gets very frustrated and angry. So the the first goal of the spirit of Babylon is to close the church. The second goal is that if it can't keep the church closed, it might as well compromise the church. That's what we would call apostate or woke or false teaching. And number three, the third thing that the spirit of Babylon is always seeking to do is to literally cut off the next generation. Because if you love the Lord and your kids don't, then faith ends when your life ends. See, the the Bible isn't just about what happened. It's about what always happens. The Bible is not old. It's eternal. The Bible tells us what happens. And we think, well, that happened such a long time ago. Yeah, but the spirit that did those things is still alive today. So you start to see patterns, you start to see themes, you start to see connections. So what was God's plan? Well, God's plan with Daniel was, you're going to Babylon, so be a missionary to Babylon. God's plan for Nehemiah, go back to Jerusalem and be a missionary to God's people there. The point is this, as the world continues to be governed and run by the spirit of Babylon, God's people need to be filled and led by the spirit of God. That brings me to the text of Nehemiah 11. So all of that was just introduction. I'm going to read only a very small part of Nehemiah 11. And here's where we pick up the story. 
The walls have been rebuilt. The gates rehung. They've reopened the temple. And we hear this. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every 10 of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own town. So 10% of the people are going to intentionally live in the urban city of Jerusalem, while nine of the 10 stayed in their own cities, but all of it was God's people on mission. And then the story continues. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. It goes on to say that in Jerusalem lived a certain number of sons of the tribe of Judah and a certain number of sons of the tribes of Benjamin and There's this long list of names of families moving into mission. I'm not going to read it. You can read it for yourselves. But here's what it says about a few of those men. It says that they were able men, that they were leaders of their father's houses, that they were men of valor. They were skilled craftsmen. So let me summarize this. Here we are just told of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of God. It's first mentioned in Psalm 46. The counterbalance to that is Susa, the city that's the capital of the Persian Empire. We learned about in Nehemiah 1, verse 1. It's the city of man. And there's a battle between the city of man and the city of God. And ultimately, Jesus said it this way to God's people, to his church, you are the light of the world. What does that mean? (laughs) That the world is dark. Have you noticed that? Here's what else Jesus says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That the church, God's people, are to be like the city of light, shining forth into the cities of darkness. The city of God is the city of light, The city of man is the city of darkness. So you have the city of truth or the city of lies. You have the city of life or the city of death. Now, there was a church father, a scholar, a good Bible teacher who lived in the 5th century. And he went by the name of St. Augustine. He lived during the reign of the Roman Empire and also the decline of that same Roman Empire. And in its heyday, the Roman Empire was the most powerful, most affluent, most secure, most dominant nation in the world. They were the America of the day. They lived in a long season of peace. They had a tremendous military. They had very affluent economy. And what happened to the Roman Empire? They went into a slow decline cycle. People stopped respecting the rule of law. They no longer had love for each other nor thought highly of the well-being of each other. They became self-consumed and very self-destructive. 
So God's children were living in a day. The church was in a day much like our day where God's people were like, you know, the future doesn't look so good. And God's people were living with dread and fear and anxiety. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. And what he explains to God's people is, well, the reason the Roman Empire that they were living in is declining and decaying and dying is because it is a city of man. And thankfully, as God's children, though we live in the city of man, we are citizens of the city of God. And we need to live in a counterculture way as God's people, like Jesus said, said, as a city of light against the cultural darkness. The city of God is typified by Jerusalem. It's the city of light. Jerusalem is mentioned 37 times in the book of Nehemiah, so it's a big deal. It's also referred to in the Bible as Zion. And between Jerusalem and Zion, it is mentioned over a thousand times in the Bible. And I think if God says something over a thousand times, it's supposed to be something that we remember. He keeps mentioning Jerusalem, Zion. It literally means the city of peace as opposed to the world, which is about conflict and division. The city of peace, the city of God, is ruled by Jesus, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace. Jerusalem was established as the capital city for the Jewish people by God through King David. In addition, there was a temple that was established because Jerusalem, the city of God, was supposed to be the headquarters where God would send his light out from that place to all of the darkness surrounding them. Jesus comes, and he is the light of the world. So the whole point of the city of God was to set up Bible teaching and sacrifices and worship and devotion to God so that Jesus, the light of the world, would come. And the light of, the Jesus, the light of Jesus would shine forth from the city of light, the city of God, across the cities of men. So the whole point of Nehemiah, why are they building a wall? Why are they reopening the church? Because they're getting ready for the coming of Jesus. He had to come to his temple. We're told that in Malachi. Jesus was going to come to the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. They had to get it rebuilt and reopened so that eventually Jesus would come. And when Jesus was a baby, where did his parents take him? To the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated before the Lord. Later, when he was a young man, 12 years old, he went with his parents to the temple to worship God, and he remained behind. And he had these theological debates and discussions with religious leaders, and they were amazed at how well he knew the Bible. They're like, this kid really knows the Bible. Yeah, because he's the hero of the whole thing. Eventually, Jesus, as a 30-year-old man, begins preaching and teaching and performing miracles. And he is hated and opposed and despised. And the night before Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, 
Jesus was where? In the Garden of Gethsemane. It's inside the city of Jerusalem. In addition, Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. And eventually he would be crucified just outside the walls of that city. Three days later, he rose. And as soon as he rises, where do you think he walks out to? Jerusalem. And the Christian church is inaugurated in Jerusalem when Jesus ascends back into heaven. And right now, let me tell you this. He is alive. He's reigning and ruling. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. And what the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation is that one day Jesus is returning and he's bringing with him the new Jerusalem. And guess where he's bringing it to? The old Jerusalem. I'll share this with you from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah in chapter 14. On that day, that day to come, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west. Here's the big idea. You and I are citizens of that Jerusalem and the king of that kingdom is our king, Jesus Christ. Our residence is not our citizenship. This is where we are temporarily. That's where we will be eternally. Now, there is a counterfeit to all of this because everything God creates, Satan tries to counterfeit. Everything God builds, Satan tries to destroy. The counterfeit of the city of God is the city of man, and it is typified by darkness. In Nehemiah, it's Susa. We learned of that in chapter 1. And the Spirit of God rules the city of God. But the spirit of Babylon rules the city of man. Here's what I'm telling you. Our world is run by darkness. We're not good in getting better. We're not. And when all is said and done, when Jesus returns, when the world has reached its expiration date, only two cultures remain, heaven and hell. You and I live in the middle. We live in a time between the times, and you've got to decide, am I going to pull hell up into my life, or am I going to invite heaven down into my life? Do I want to live under the reign of the city of God, or do I want to live like everyone else in the city of man? You see, if you choose darkness, you're pulling hell up into your life. You choose light, you're inviting heaven down. You choose bitterness, you're pulling hell up. You choose forgiveness, you're inviting heaven down. You choose lies, hell up. You choose truth, heaven down. You choose Jesus, (laughs) heaven down. You choose anyone or anything else, it's hell up. So the point of Nehemiah is this. God sends Nehemiah back to the city of God to reopen it so that the spirit of God can come down, so that God's people, even though they are surrounded by cities of darkness, they can live as God's people in the freedom and joy of God's light. This is exactly when Jesus prayed and what he meant by this. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to live kingdom down, not hell up. We want to live like we're in the city of God, not like we're in the city of man. And that's the whole battle in the book of Nehemiah. Are you still with me? Uh, just encourage me and say yes. Um, so we are citizens of the city of God, the city of light. We're surrounded by darkness in the spirit of Babylon and the cities of man. So the question is, how can we as God's people be used by God to shine light into the darkness, to bring good where there is evil, to bring truth into lies. That's the question, right? Well, I want to answer this from Nehemiah. And first of all, for those of you who maybe think that Christians are unloving and intolerant and unkind, let me say this. We believe the Bible is true and we love you. But if you're not living according to what God says, we don't think that's God's best for you. We want God's best for you. And so we're telling you some things need to change, not because we're better than you. <laughs> Many of us are worse. You see, it's not good people and bad people. It's bad people and Jesus. That's the storyline of the Bible. That's it. But if you love someone and they're living contrary to God and God's blessing is not going to be on their life, if you love them, you tell them. You tell them this is not God's best for you and this doesn't end well. So you need to know that as Christians, we seek cultural change. It's not because we hate people. It's because we love people. Here's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. It's a case study on how to revitalize a dead, dying, decaying culture. And what we saw that happened in their time was a revival. Sometimes when God's people are losing legally, politically, financially, the Holy Spirit just shows up and says, okay, I'm going to save a lot of people because if I don't, this isn't going to end well. We saw this in the book of Nehemiah. They gathered for worship. In my new life verse, they had a sermon for six hours. And they rejoiced and they worshiped and they gave generously and they served. They were kneeling, they were weeping, they were enjoying the presence of God. This is what we would call a revival. This is where God's people who have been removed from him now run back to him. This is where those who don't know God come to know God, where those who are lukewarm get ignited and excited. I'm telling you that apart from revival, I think we're in trouble. Because not too many times legally are we winning. Politically, losing. Financially, are all the companies going after Bible teaching or against it? So what we need to be praying for and planning for and hoping for is a revival starting in your own life. Saying, Jesus, I, I love you. I, people need you. Help me to be a part of the solution. Ultimately, until God changes us on the inside, nothing changes on the outside. Starting with our own church. I, I said this a few weeks ago. For 2024, 
The session has adopted a plan to have every group that meets regularly at Benton Heights Presbyterian to begin thinking outside the box. That means to design and implement over the course of the year three outreaches to unchurched folks that have the message of Jesus Christ accompanying them. This is about living out the Great Commission that as we're going, Jesus makes the command, make disciples. So that we've got to be intentional about making disciples and having those disciples reproduce more disciples. That's three outward-focused events for the Sunday school classes, the Bible study groups, the youth group, the women of the church, the, the men's fellowship, the choir, the praise team. Maybe that's one in the spring, one in the summer, one in the fall. And if you're a part of two or three of those groups, still, just I think it's fair to say, let's just pick three of those. So I might do one as my Sunday school class, one as the part of the choir, one as part of... It's not having to do six or nine things. But think of it this way. Maybe God brought us together for the same reason he brought them together. To be a city on a hill. To set up the city of God. To be the people of God. To be under the word of God. To celebrate the rulership of our King Jesus. And to let darkness see the light and the difference that a life given over to Jesus makes. And that's becoming more of the place where the good news of the forgiveness and transforming life of the power of Jesus is on display. And you know why? Because life without Jesus doesn't work. There's no peace until you're under the Prince of Peace. There's no light until you're in the kingdom of light. You know, part of God's frustration with his people in Nehemiah is that the world is dark. He keeps telling them to be the light, and they keep trying to find a dimmer switch. They're like, well, well I don't want to live totally in the dark. I don't want to live totally in the light. God, is there somewhere in the middle where we can break some of your commandments and still be okay with you? Can we find some middle ground where we can have a foot in the city of man and a foot in the city of God and you're okay with us? And God keeps pushing them saying no. Darkness or light? Truth or lies? Good or evil? The spirit of God or the spirit of Babylon? And I invite you with me to pray for the students in our church. We have the most incredible youth. And all around them is darkness and drugs and opposition and hostility about trying to be a Christian in that environment. And guess what? They love Jesus. You know why? Because they've seen all the alternatives. And they know none of it works. And you know when a kid gets the most confused? When they are raised in a lukewarm, dim religious environment. 
And if they're honest, they'll tell you, that doesn't work. So what does work? Jesus works. The Bible works. The gospel works. The church works. The kingdom works. The Holy Spirit works. And when other things aren't working, that's the good news. Now, finally, they can see the light. Finally, they can see the light of Jesus Christ. Finally, they can see the light of the kingdom of God. Finally, they can see the light of the truth of God's word. Finally, they can see the light and illumination of life powered by the Holy Spirit. I know the world is getting darker, but I'm telling you, it's a great opportunity to shine light into the darkness. I believe that the best days of Christianity are still in front of us, not in the past. And I believe that as everything else falls down, this is time for the church to rise up. As I read Nehemiah, I am filled with encouragement and hope. Now, not as I hear the news, but when I open the Bible and I hear the good news of what God has always done. And as he did in the days of Nehemiah, he can do in our day. Amen? And so I'm not trying to do anything but encourage you as God's people. Don't lose to fear. Don't let fear guide you. Let faith guide you. Don't let discouragement overwhelm you. Let God encourage you. Don't worry about how dark it's getting. See that as a tremendous opportunity. The darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.